0: Man, we are so excited this morning. We are just doing dances on the stage here because we, we have a live band. It's Father's Day. There are some people in the room, all these band members sitting here. So I'm not just talking to an empty room. I, I love our production team so much, but they have been preached to for three and a half months straight, the only ones in the room. So I'm so thankful that we have a live band this morning. And happy Father's Day. Are you excited for Father's Day? All of you dads out there, I'm thinking of you dads who just tell your kids to rub some dirt in it, right? That's your advice for everything, rub some dirt in it. Well, I want to talk about dads for a moment. You know, you might be a dad if you know where to find the duct tape at all times. Huh? Any dads? If you're just sitting on the couch with your family and you know where the duct tape is, just turn to your family and tell them where the duct tape is. Did you do that? Great on you dads. You know, you might just be a dad... If you sign all of your text messages with your name, right? You guys do realize that your name is at the top of the message box. You don't need to sign every text, right? Love you, Dad. That one was for you. Um, You might be a dad if you wear your socks with your sandals. Any dads out there wearing socks and sandals? Maybe you're wearing socks and sandals right now. If you are wearing socks and sandals right now, you better comment in that chat, okay? Moms, kids, you comment. Don't let your dad get away with it. And finally, this is my dad's joke. I like this one. You just might be a dad if in your wallet you have a picture of your kids where your money used to be. Right? Oh, <laughs> you dads out there, you have a picture of your kids where your money used to be. Well, we are so excited for Father's Day, and I am excited to bring this message to you this morning. It is so cool how God works all of these passages to come at just the right time. We believe that all Scripture is inspired, and it is relevant for every time, every place, every situation. I am more than aware that there are people out there today who are watching who don't have a good dad. Maybe you lost your dad. Uh, maybe you were mistreated maybe you were neglected by your father well my hope and my prayer for you today is that you would find God to be a good heavenly father that he will never leave you or forsake you that his heart is for you that he loves you he knows you he's not going to lose you at the supermarket he's not going to forget to pick you up after your recital he is there with you and he is a good heavenly father I was talking to a friend recently about parenting and being a dad and kids, and he's a funny guy, and he was kind of humorous as he was saying this, but he said this, you know what, Josh? My goal for my son is that he would just grow up and not go to prison. (laughs) That's my goal for my kid, that if he would just grow up and stay out of jail, I would have accomplished my mission as a dad. And as much as he was being funny, and we were kind of joking around about it, and he didn't really mean that, Um, Many of us as dads, we can set these high expectations for our kids, can't we? I mean, I remember when my son Reese was born and thinking, this kid is going to rule the world, right? He's just going to be the best. And you know what? Social media doesn't help with that. YouTube doesn't help with that. Maybe you've watched videos of like a father-daughter dance duo or like a music duo or a father-son like football skills duo. And you think, if I could just only do that, And then when your unrealistic expectations aren't met, you just retire to the sideline and kind of wallow in your self-pity because you weren't the dad you thought you should be. Well, my message for you today is get up from the sideline. Don't watch your life pass you by wishing that you could have or wishing that you would be or wishing it was the way it was. Get up off the sideline and move in God's direction. That's my message for this morning. Can I let you in on a little secret? Being a good dad is being available. Just be available. You want to be a good dad? Be available. The best thing you can be as a dad is available. Your kids are never going to remember your fishing technique. They're never going to remember all the instructions you gave when they were getting ready for their driver's license. They're never going to remember the advice you gave them on the way to their wedding day. But they're going to remember that you drove them to your wedding day. They're going to remember that you were there with them when you were fishing, when you were driving. Here's a little personal story. My dad used to take us on the four-wheelers on the snowmobiles. I remember being here with my uncles in Home, my grandparents, four-wheeling up Reed Road up on the mountain into Burt. We used to do that all the time. And my dad had this knot that he always tied around the back of the four-wheeler to tow toboggans or whatever. He would wrap the knot, the rope, around the trailer hitch. He would loop it around itself three times and then tuck it back through the rabbit's hole, pull it tight, and you got a perfect slip knot. It'll come off every time. It's great. And I remember him doing that as a kid, over and over, watching him do this, and I learned how to do it from watching him. He showed me how to do it. So just a few years ago, we're working in my backyard, previous property in New Brunswick, and I'm getting ready to tie this knot. Dad's right here, and I thought... This is going to be such a special moment. I call dad over. Hey, dad, watch this. And I tie this knot. I wrap the rope around. I do three loops. I tuck it back up through the rabbit hole, pull it tight. And I just stand back to watch his reaction. Is he going to start crying? Is he going to laugh? What's going to happen? And he looks at me and he says, that's a nice knot. Who taught you that? I'm like, dad, you taught me this. I've watched you do it a hundred times. He said, I've never tied that knot in my life. <laughs> I don't know if he forgot or if I just remembered it differently, but I thought that was going to be a good moment. I just want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Let's get into the message this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 5. We are getting towards the end of our series, Jesus, Miracles, and Mercy, and I'm so excited to tell you that in just a couple weeks' time, I think it's Sunday, July 5th, we are introducing a brand new series with the Gospel Project curriculum, three years through the Bible. It is called Upside Down. Countercultural teachings of Jesus. Jesus is the master teacher. When he teaches on discipleship, when he teaches on prayer, when he teaches on generosity, he flips the script. He flips the cultural norm on its head. So we're so excited for that sermon series. I believe it's July 5th that we are starting. It's called Upside Down. But today we are talking about a miracle and mercy shown to one man in particular. In John chapter 5. So if you would turn to John chapter 5, this guy had been injured, he'd been sidelined, he'd been left on the bench and forgotten, and the game had gone on without him. Men, do you know any athletes who ended their career that way? I'm thinking about 2007 NCAA basketball superstar Greg Oden big Greg Oden. He played for Ohio State. I think he was the number one draft pick in 2007 into the NBA. He wrecked his knee and he hasn't played in the NBA since. Injured, sidelined, forgotten. That's this man that we are talking about today. Can I encourage you men? Get off the bench, get off the sideline, get into the game. Don't watch life pass you by from the sidelines. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word this morning. God, I thank you for the timeless truths of scripture. I thank you that I'm not up here relying on my limited experience or what little facts or trivia I know. But thank you that I get to stand on the word of God this morning. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a father to the fatherless. That your heart is for the broken, the hurting. And God, we pray for those who might be mourning the loss of a loved one today. God encouraged their hearts. Maybe this is something they always did with their dad. They came to church to celebrate Father's Day, and they're tuning in this morning uh, just to bring back some of that nostalgia and tradition and, and to remember their dad. Father, I pray for those individuals that you would give a special blessing and comfort their heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the story goes, Jesus is traveling once again. Jesus was on a journey. Our motto, as Steve said, is to share the journey. We're all on a journey. Jesus is on a journey to another Passover feast in Jerusalem. And he comes up to the city of Jerusalem, and we find in John chapter 5 and verse 2, it says this. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five-roofed colonnades. Now, I don't want you to miss the simple details, because it's such a beautiful messianic picture. Here you have Jesus... He's traveling into the city of Jerusalem through the Sheep Gate, past the Pool of Bethesda, on his way to the temple. The Pool of Bethesda is between the Sheep Gate and the temple. It's right in the shadow of the temple, not too far away. Here's Jesus, the spotless lamb who is to be slain for for sinners, for you and me. And he's entering through the Sheep Gate. Today it's called the Sheep Market. You can see it if you're in Israel. That's traditionally where the sheep would be led into the city on their way to the temple to be slaughtered and sacrificed. And here's Jesus taking that same route on the way to celebrate the Passover feast. The lamb that was slain in Egypt, the blood on the doorpost, the death angel passing over the Passover feast. And here we see Jesus, the spotless lamb slain to take away the sins of the world. Now the pool of Bethesda, Beth is a term for house, Bethesda means house of mercy. Bethlehem means house of meat, house of bread. Bethel means house of God. Bethesda means house of mercy. Now, why is it called a house of mercy? Let's get into some more context. Look at verse 3. In these in these pools, these two colonnades of pools, Bethesda, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. A multitude. Now, so many of us have never seen a site like this would have been. In fact, it wouldn't be what you saw that grabbed your attention first. It'd be what you smelled on the way to the pool of Bethesda. One speaker was pointing out how many people would be crammed into this little space. Here's what it looks like today. It's not a big area. It had two pools, one that would be higher than the other, and it was just basically in the shadow of the temple not too far away. They would have been designed by wealthy people, by the elite created. They were quite nice. We're not talking about a stagnant pond. We're talking about a well-manufactured pool that has these pillars, these roofs. And since the time that the rich people built it, it's been taken over by all of these marginalized, impoverished people with ailments, missing limbs, diseases, missing eyes. And now it's, it's left to the marginalized. Jesus comes along to the house of mercy where all of these helpless, hopeless, homeless people would be. Isn't that a picture of what the church should be? A house of mercy. Not in the shadow of the great magnificent temple, but on the journey of Jesus, a place where he stops in to heal and bind the brokenhearted, the wounded. In these lay a multitude of sick people. Now why were they there? Why were they there? Maybe if you're reading in your Bible, we've made it to verse 3. Does your Bible have a verse 4? Because mine doesn't. It goes straight to verse 5. Did you notice that? I'm, I'm preaching from the English Standard Version, which is what we have traditionally preached from here. We believe it's a good version of Scripture. We know that Scripture is without error and totally inspired in the original language, but it had to be... Um, What's the term when it's changed from Greek and Aramaic? It had to be translated into today's language so that we're able to read it. Because I don't know Greek, I don't know Hebrew, I don't know Aramaic. In that translation process, why is there no verse 4? If you have a King James Version, a New King James Version, maybe a New American Standard Bible, it has a verse 4. So let's see what verse 4 says and then we'll talk about why it might not be in other Bibles. Verse 4, in the New American Standard Version, it says this, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into this pool of Bethesda that we're talking about and stirred up the waters, so that whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. That's what the verse says. So as the story goes, tradition, legend, An angel would come down once a year, stir the water, first one in would be healed of whatever ailment they had. That's why all of these people are gathered here. They're waiting for their one shot, once a year, their one chance to step into that water and to be healed. All those people are there to be healed by the pool of Bethesda once a year. Now why is this not in my Bible? Now, in the translation process, the scribes those who were transcribing these ancient documents, as the Bible became more widely spread as it was going to Ephesus, Corinth, Rome, they felt the need to add this context because, of course, Romans aren't going to know about a pool in Jerusalem and this tradition that once a year the angel comes down, first person in gets healed. So they put it in for the sake of context. That's why it, there. It, it's there. It helps us understand the picture that we are studying. It doesn't take away from Scripture. doesn't change Scripture. It helps us understand the context of what's happening in that day. They would have added it in the margin of manuscripts. But the most ancient manuscripts do not include it. And that's why it's not in the English Standard Version. Did you follow all that? It doesn't matter a whole lot. But just so you know that there isn't really a verse 4 there. It's a contextual addition to the text, so that we would understand the story. That's why all of the multitude of those facing affliction were gathered here, waiting for their one shot to be healed. Now, that was verse four. What do you think that society would be like? What, what would the culture be like within those walls of that pool? Do you think, like its name, the House of Mercy, that it, it was a very merciful crowd, that they, they were kind, they were generous? no. No, you first, right? Let me get the door for you. Let me hold your hand as you walk into the pool so that you can be healed. No, this is dog-eat-dog competition, right? Men, fathers, competition. If you're not first, you're last. If you're second, you're the first loser. There's no participation ribbons in life, right? Dad, have you ever said something like that? I hope you don't say that stuff to your kids. Kids, I don't believe that. That's just a little gist on Father's Day about competition. But just think of these poor people. (laughs) They don't want to miss it. They don't they don't want to go get a proper night's sleep in case they miss it. They don't want to go to their son's bar mitzvah in case they miss it. They don't want to use a proper bathroom in case while they're flushing that toilet these waters get stirred and they're in the bathroom and they miss their one shot because then they got to wait a whole year until they get to do it again. You know, I was listening to a speaker, and he was kind of speculating the life of Jesus. And uh, tradition says that at this pool, this had only been happening for about three decades, which is about the life and ministry of Jesus as he was here on earth that we're reading and teaching about. Is it possible that as Jesus was there for the Jewish feasts, and his parents were, were watching him and they were traveling along, is it possible that Jesus was the one who just dipped his finger and the water stirred and caused that miracle? I don't know speaker was speculating but I'd never heard that before I thought it was interesting but is that a colorful enough picture what what a messy spot that would be just think about when those waters actually were stirred and all of these people are fighting tooth and nail it's like musical chairs when the music ends you want to be the closest one to the empty seat everybody's fighting to get in there how many times did the water stir and people get trampled or crushed or drown in that water trying to be the first one to get there What a nasty picture. What they thought would give them freedom actually put them in bondage. Do you realize that? That elusive cure, that maybe it would be me this year, actually made them stuck. What they thought was going to free them actually made them stuck on the sidelines. It was as if they were reaching forward for a mirage in the desert. And it was just that carrot in front of the horse's nose. They're never going to reach it. It's never going to come. Let's meet one of these poor people. We're looking at verse 5 of John chapter 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. How crazy is that? Last week, we talked about a woman who had an uncleanness and she couldn't touch anyone. For 12 years, she was an outcast. This guy hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. That's longer than I've been alive. I cannot imagine that. 38 years. How many other people had he seen be healed? How many other people just beat him in the nick of time? How close had he had been to being healed and just missed it? Just a split second too late. And every time it just reinstates this idea that, He's probably not going to make it. He's probably not going to get to that water first. He's probably not going to experience healing. 38 years. Invalid. You know, the Greek term for invalid is echo. It means stuck. It means held back. It means cuffed, arrested, restrained, locked up. This guy has been stuck for 38 years. Watching life go by and he doesn't believe he's able to do anything about it. He's stuck. He can't do anything. He's waiting for the stars to line up. He's waiting for his perfect moment. He's waiting for his invitation off the bench and into the game, but he just hasn't made it yet. He's stuck. Maybe that describes where you're at today. You feel stuck. You feel trapped. You feel like life is passing you by, and you're just watching it happen, and for whatever reason, you're stuck on the sidelines. You've had 38 opportunities and every time you've come short, you've missed it. You haven't reached the mark, the expectation. This man was stuck for 38 years. Why are you stuck? Why are you waiting today? What are you waiting for today? Is there some elusive goal out there that you think is just beyond the horizon and it just never seems to come? Stuck. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. I love that verse and I hate that verse all at the same time because how many times are you expectant? Are you anticipating? Are you waiting? Are you watching? You're looking out the window and it just never comes. Day after day, month after month, year after year, 38 years. (laughs) Hope deferred makes the heart sick. This guy's chances of winning a race to that water are slim to none. It's like playing the lottery. The vast majority of them, statistically, are guaranteed losers. They're never going to make it there first. How tough would that be to swallow day after day, year after year? 30 plus times. You know, he's just one person in a multitude of invalids. This is just one story of one guy's suffering in a multitude of people who are all suffering, have their own situations, their own problems, their own issues. Can I tell you something? We all have issues. We all have struggles. None of us are perfect. None of us can measure up. And social media does this to us so much, doesn't it? We tend to compare our struggles or our triumphs to somebody else's, don't we? And comparison kills. It kills contentment. It kills joy. You'll never have enough. You'll never be where you need to be as long as we keep comparing ourselves to other people. You know, the only standard that you need to compare yourself to is God's standard of glory. And Romans says, you fall short. We all fall short. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're all in the same boat. Why would we bother comparing ourselves to other people? Why would we bother comparing ourselves to other parents? Why would we bother comparing our kids to other kids? We're all in the same boat, sinners in need of a savior. We all are. The the playing field is level. Tryouts are the same thing every time. You failed. You failed. None of us measures up. We need somebody. We need something. That's what we're talking about today. You know, I mentioned last week that Jesus doesn't just see a crowd. He doesn't just see a group of people. He sees individuals. He sees stories. He sees suffering. He sees hopes and dreams. He sees you today, wherever you're at. And Jesus singles out just one man and does for him, as we're going to find out what nobody else, what no pool of Bethesda is ever going to do for this man. You know what? Sometimes in this whole concept of mercy, we ourselves become paralyzed in our hearts and minds because of the amount of suffering in the world. I know I do, don't you? I mean, COVID-19, everybody's in the same boat. NS shooting. so many lives devastated in our community. What can we do to help out? Who are we going to help first? How can one person make a difference? I used this quote about a month ago, but Andy Stanley says, do for one person what you wish you could do for everybody. Just start somewhere. Be aware of where you're at and then move in God's direction. Do something. Start somewhere. Don't stay stuck. You you know what? What else I get from this verse, 38 years? It's never too late for God. It's never too late for God. You might be sitting on the couch thinking, man, I messed up as a parent. I messed up as a kid. I messed up as an employee. Well, guess what? It's never too late for God. In fact, the parts of our life that stink, that are ugly, that we try and hide, that's the place where God wants to show up first. I mean, Jesus traveled in through the sheep gate, and where did he go? He went to the house of mercy where all of these herding people are cramped in trying to get a glimpse and a touch of that water at the right time. Jesus could have walked around that. He could have avoided it instead he walks straight into the stinking part of the city where all of the marginalized underprivileged people would be and he helps one individual it's never too late for God you know Jesus doesn't see two paralyzed legs he sees the whole man and he loves him anyway he loves you anyway let's look at verse six says when Jesus saw him lying there And he knew that he'd already been there a long time. He said to him, (laughs) Do you see this question? He said to him, Do you want to be healed? Let let me try and read that with some different different emphasis. Do you want to be healed? Maybe maybe if we read it this way. Do you want to be healed? (laughs) I, I really don't know how to read that and make it sound polite or proper in this situation. Like, can you imagine walking up to somebody who's paralyzed and all they want is to be able to use their legs and asking them this? Like, what, what is Jesus thinking? What's the point that he's trying to make? Does he not realize? I mean, how is this man going to respond? What is he thinking? Like, uh, duh, I want to be healed are you kidding me I haven't been able to use my legs in 38 years you don't know my story you don't know my struggle why do you think I'm sitting here why do you think I'm waiting for this pool why do you think like come on it's obvious maybe the disciples are like uh Peter uh code red here should we pull Jesus aside like uh John I I don't think he realizes uh Jesus come talk to us for a second do you realize where we are Do you realize this is the pool of Bethesda and that guy's been sitting there for 38 years? Do you realize all these people are in here for the same reason? They all want to be healed. They all want to find healing for their ailments. So Jesus, you don't have to go to each person and ask them, do you want to be healed? That's the reason they're here. Does he not know? Does he not realize? Does he not understand this contextual bit? Maybe we should write it in the margin of Scripture because he doesn't understand that an angel comes down once a year, stirs the water, first person in gets healed. Everybody's here because they want to be healed. Why would you ask this question, Jesus? Jesus knew. Jesus always knows, doesn't he? Jesus knew, and he asked a very pointed question on purpose. He asked this man, is your intention really to be healed? Do you actually want to be made whole? Because if you can walk again, that means you need to enter back into society. That means you need to find a new group of friends. That means you need to understand how to socialize and live in this culture again. That means you need to find a job. You need to find a place to live. You need to make it to the grocery store. You need to pay your taxes that you've been missing out. Like, think of all the ramifications of really being healed. Is it really your intention to be healed? Or do you just want to keep living the same old way, wallowing in your self-pity? Now, I realize I'm doing a lot of judging and saying this right now, but... Think about the question. Do you really want to be healed? Can I say this? Not everybody wants to be healed. Do you realize that? Most most people will settle for feeling better. Right? Most people just want to feel better. They're they're content to cope. They, They don't really want a cure, do they? You see, most of us, we want a substance for our symptom. Do you realize that? Like, I don't want to go through knee surgery. I'll miss out on my whole summer, and the pain of going through surgery, missing out on my summer, will be worse than just wearing a brace and taking care of it down the road. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, surgery. It's easier to keep smoking than it is to quit smoking. <laughs> it, sometimes you need to be cut before you can heal. Sometimes the pain of going to the root of the issue is so much worse than just taking care of the fruit on the end of the branches. You know what I'm saying? You know, sometimes it's easier to drown the pain than it is to face the pain. Sometimes it's not worth going to emerge because you know you're going to wait there for a while. You're going to have to get tested for COVID-19 and then that's going to take all this time and then you're going to get a call two weeks down the road and it's going to take forever. Just rub some dirt on it, right, dads? You know, my son was having his quiet time last Sunday afternoon. He's he's too old to nap, but mom and dad still need time to themselves. So my son's taking his quiet time and he's taking it on our bed, which is a privilege for him and he's playing with his cars and he's reading his books. And he falls off the bed backwards. Our, our son, who's four years old, he's going to be five next month. He falls backwards. He hits his head on a piece of furniture. And you know that piece of your ear where it connects to the side of your head? He gouged that wide open and flipped the top of his ear back. I mean, there's blood everywhere. And this, this is a proud dad moment right here. Probably wasn't the right choice, but I'm proud of him. Instead of coming and calling for mommy and daddy, he toughed it out. He climbed back up into bed and he keeps playing with his dinky cars and looking at his books. (laughs) Which I kind of thought was awesome, but then in hindsight he should have come and got mom and dad. But anyway, we're just on the other side of the wall. Um, I didn't hear this happen, but I go in to check on him a little while later. And here's Reese. He's sitting on the bed. His head's covered in blood, like right up the top of his head, all around the back. It's on his hands. It's on our pillows. It's on our blanket. And he's just playing with his dinky cars. Well, my parent's neighbor is a nurse, an, an emergency room nurse, actually, thank goodness. So she comes down and takes a look. And let me tell you, the pain of washing out that wound... And then flapping that tender skin, like touch your ear up there, it's real sensitive. Tucking that skin back down and then taping it down and then removing that bandage later on and replacing it, like the pain of going through that is worse than falling off the bed in the first place. Let me tell you, my son just kept saying, don't touch it, don't touch it, and he's like shrinking and he's pulling back from it. Do you ever get a splinter? You know what getting a splinter is like, right? You can barely tell it's there until you press on that finger or wherever it is in your hand. And as a kid, I remember, you know, do I put up with the pain of the splinter or do I go to dad and ask him to remove it? Because I know what that means. Dad's going to pull out the needle nose pliers. He's going to get the needle. He's going to get the knife. He's going to get the tweezers. He's going to get his magnifying glass. He's going to get a light. It's going to take all afternoon. But dad gets it out. And the pain of getting it out is oftentimes worse than just having it in the first place. But if it remains there, it's going to fester. Do you see what I'm saying? Not everybody wants to be healed. Most people just want a substance for their symptom. And Jesus looks at this guy and he realizes sometimes you need to be cut to be healed. And he cuts right to the heart of the conversation. He says, do you really want to be made well? Or do you just want to keep doing the life that you've grown accustomed to these last 38 years? Do you really just want to keep doing life the way you've always done it? Or do you actually want to be healed? Do you actually want to make a change? Do you actually want to reorder your life and get back into society? Or do you just want to feel better? Do you want to keep doing the same old dead church, the same old dead religion? Or are you ready to make a change? That's the question that Jesus asks. And that's the question that he's asking us today. You know, we keep saying after COVID-19, as things start to open up, I can't wait to get back to the way things used to be. But maybe God is using the pain of COVID-19 to help us make some steps in the healing process, to help us get right some of the issues in our life that we can't hide from when we're alone in our own homes. Jesus is looking at this man and he's saying, do you really want to be made whole? Do you really want to be healed? Now let's look at this man's response. He says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one. I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. The blame game, right? So easily done. You know, good athletes... Good team players don't blame their team. They take responsibility, don't they? You know, I'm thinking about LeBron James and the Cavaliers just a number of years ago when they were against Golden State in the finals, and it's coming down to the wire. I think they're in Cleveland. The game's tied. There's only a few seconds ago. I think Hart is taking uh, the foul shot. And J.R. Smith grabs the rebound. Do you remember this? And he dribbles out the clock thinking that they were ahead. LeBron's trying to grab his attention. LeBron's trying to call timeout. And then there's this famous picture as the clock runs down of LeBron holding his arms out to the basket like, what are you doing? They end up losing the game in overtime. The press conference after the game, LeBron walks in. He's got his suit on, which is cut into shorts, which I think is hilarious. And he sits down. The very first question is, LeBron, what do you think of JR's blunder in the big game? Like, you guys had this thing in the bag. You had an easy final shot. He dribbled out the clock. What do you think of his massive failure? LeBron sets down the microphone, stands up, gets his bag, and leaves. No comment. Good players, good athletes never blame their success or failure on other people. You know, that's the easiest excuse. It's the number one excuse. It's the first one that we use is to blame it on somebody else. It's the number one excuse in society. Uh, Robert Morris says, no one can hinder the destiny of your life but you. It's time to take responsibility. We can't blame our failure on other people, on society, on our wife, on our kids, on the father figure that we had. We need to take responsibility for where we're at and move in God's direction. It's so amazing to think of some of the greatest minds in history, scientific, mathematic, inventions, all of these world leaders came from oppressive situations. They took a bad situation and then they made a change and made something great out of it. Your success and your failure isn't contingent on somebody else. Let's take ownership of where we're at. But man, it's easy. Excuses. This guy has them. I mean, 38 years he's been sitting there sidelined. All of the people in this colonnade, all of the people at this pool, they all have their excuses. I mean, my excuses sound like nothing compared to some of these people. This man's been paralyzed for 38 years. And he says, I don't have anyone. If If I just had a friend, if I just had somebody that cared for me, if I just had somebody who would take the opportunity, if I just had somebody who would invite me, who would check in on me, who would see how I'm doing, if if that person didn't hurt me, and we get ourselves stuck, don't we? We take on that identity. We become known as the sick man. We become known by our struggle. Jesus is going to call this man out of his struggle. You see, he's paralyzed. He's stuck, not just physically, not just emotionally as he's laying there having given up, But he's stuck mentally as well. He's fixated on that water. His only hope, his only healing is that water. And he needs somebody to get him there. That's where his healing is going to come from. That's why he can't leave his spot. That's why he hasn't left his post. For 38 years he's been there waiting, wishing, wanting, watching. And he's stuck. Look at verse 8. What Jesus says. Jesus says to him, get up take up your bed and walk. (laughs) Only Jesus can say something like that to somebody who's paralyzed. Get up, take up your bed and walk. And get up there is doubly emphasized. It's like it's repeated. It's like Jesus is saying it with an exclamation point. I don't know if he's saying it with joy, with celebration, or if he's kind of yelling it as a command. Get up. Get out of your sour state. Stop whining about your situation. This is your invitation. Get up. He reaches down into this man's sickness and he calls him up out of it, just like he's calling us from death to life, from darkness to light in his power. And then Jesus says, take up your bed. I love this part. That mat, that blanket, that cushion that he had been laying on all those years, the thing that used to carry him, he's now going to carry through the power given by Jesus. That thing that was his crutch, that thing that used to be his identity, is now his testimony. And as he carries it around, he's going to get to tell people, look, I used to be stuck to this. I used to be addicted to this. I could never leave this. But now Jesus has given me the power to step up and carry this mat. And then Jesus tells him to walk, to go, move on, Leave the sidelines, leave the pool, enter back into your life, move on with your life, stop watching your life pass you by, and in my power, get up, take up your mat, and walk. I love that command from Jesus. With those three simple commands, Jesus ends 38 years of suffering. 38 years are over with Jesus' simple commands. The man stands up, takes up his bed, he walks, and a new journey begins. You see, here's part of why this man was stuck. You remember back in John chapter 4, just one chapter earlier, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she's looking for water. He's looking for water. They get into this conversation. He says, I have water that you've never heard of. It will quench your thirst forever. You will thirst no more. And this woman says, because she's stuck in this mindset just like this guy you don't even have a bucket how are you going to get the water from the well and jesus says i am the living water i am the water i don't need a bucket i don't need this well i am the living water This man is sitting there focused on that water, and Jesus says, forget the pool of Bethesda. Forget the once a year. Forget the angel coming down. Forget the first one in. Forget me carrying you over there. I am the living water. Get up, take up your bed, rise in my strength, and begin a brand new journey. See, most people want a symptom for their struggle. They want a substance to help with that symptom, but what they really need is a savior for their soul. He didn't need the water, he needed Jesus, and there was Jesus calling him out of it. But you know what? Not everyone was excited about that miracle. You see, the reason was this. It's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. God says, honor the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. And the Jewish religious leaders had added so many laws to the Sabbath. You could only walk so many steps. You could only care for your animals if you owned a farm in a certain way. If one of the animals died, then you were supposed to go about it this way. On the Sabbath, you couldn't pick up a stick, but you could pick up your child. You couldn't be a good employee, but you could be a good father. And then you think of this man, he's picking up his mat, and he's heading towards the temple. He's kind of lost sight of Jesus in the crowd. He arrives in the temple, and the Jewish religious leaders say, Hey, you're carrying your mat. And you'd kind of expect them to say how and be bewildered and be amazed. But instead, they're more concerned about the religious rules. He's carrying his mat on the Sabbath and they get all up in arms. Here's how crazy it was. He could have taken his mat and he could have draped it around his shoulders and it would have worked within the context of the law. But instead, because he was carrying the mat, he was stopped and he was questioned and he would ask who he thinks he is. And then he says, a man healed me. He doesn't even know Jesus' name. You see, in that moment, that man could have so easily said, you know what, I throw in the towel, I give up. I'm thankful to have my legs, but I'm going to go back to what I know. This religious community obviously doesn't want me here. They're obviously not thankful, excited. They don't see the blessing that I've experienced. I'm just going to go back and sit by the pool, what I'm used to with my friends where I've known for the last three decades plus. He so easily could have done that. But in the temple, he runs into Jesus. And Jesus says, you are well. You are whole. Sin no more. Stop sinning. You see, this man found his legs. But more importantly, he found his life. He found the living water. He found Jesus Christ. He found something religion never could have brought him. He found hope. He found holiness in Jesus Christ alone. You can't find it by keeping the rules. You can't find it by waiting on the sidelines until everything lines up. You can't find it at a pool in Jerusalem. You can only find it in Jesus Christ. You see, that man found his legs, but he also found his faith. Can I encourage you that whenever you become aware of where you're at and the state that you're in and then choose to make bold steps of faith and move in God's direction, you will find God to be faithful every single time. Let me close with this. I know so many of our church family have been praying that we would find the right house for us. And I just want to give a little testimony to God's faithfulness. If you're willing to move in God's direction, you will find him faithful every time. Well, get this. About a month and a half ago, I was preaching with the whiteboard here. Do you remember that? And I was talking about how in God's mercy, he doesn't always give us what we want, but he gives us what we need. Do you remember that message just about a month and a half ago? During that message, while I was saying those words, we got confirmation that we had an accepted offer on a house. During that message, as I'm saying that, which also happened to be 12 months to the Sunday since we made the announcement at our former church, True Life Church, uh, that our time, our ministry there had been coming to an end and we were going to be heading here for ministry. 12 months to the Sunday. Now this weekend, Father's Day weekend, we got the keys to our new house. This Sunday is 12 months from our final Sunday at True Life Church. And I just want to give God all the praise and glory for his faithfulness. When you move in God's direction, you will find him faithful every single time. And this man not only found his legs and his strength, this man found his faith, his life, his hope, his truth, his purpose in Jesus Christ. I just want to praise God for his faithfulness today and for this miracle that Jesus wrought in this man's life. My encouragement for you today is to step off of the sidelines and move in God's direction. Take some bold steps of faith. Be available to your family. Don't be stuck on the sidelines waiting for some elusive cure that you think will bring you happiness. Instead, move in God's direction. Let's close in a word of prayer. I'm going to invite the band to come back. I'm so excited to have a live band this morning. Let's close in prayer and we're going to be led in one more song. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for who you are today. God, I want to praise your name uh, for all the dads out there who care for their families, all the dads who represent you well, who show a good and godly example to their children of what your love is like. Unconditional, always available, and never-ending. God, we thank you so much for the heavenly father that you are. Thank you that you care for us. Thank you for all of the blessings that you send into our life. God, I think of folks out there who might be struggling through ailments, struggling through disease, praying for a cure, praying for a good report from a doctor, praying for something to help them with the pain. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give them that, but so much more importantly, that you would give them new life. That you would make them whole, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. That you would bring them into a right and proper relationship with you through the blood of Jesus Christ, Father. That their suffering in this life would not would just pale in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is to come because of our relationship with you. The home that you are preparing in eternity for us because of the salvation that you have brought, the forgiveness of our sins and new life. God, we thank you that you are a good heavenly father, that your heart is for your children, that you love us, that you love the whole world so much so that you gave your only son the greatest act of love this world will ever know, and that he died in our place on our cross. Jesus, we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh.
1: i